This is a recording of Marjorie Newton's account of the faith of the Maori saints, a critical appraisal by Lewis Midgley. Published in Interpreter, a journal of Mormon scripture, read by Steve Metcalf. Abstract. Marjorie Newton's Mormon and Maori is a version of her 1998 thesis in which she rejects key elements of the Maori Latter-day Saint historical narrative. This contrasts with her earlier faith-affirming tiki and temple. In Mormon and Maori, Newton targets what she sees as Maori missionary mythology. She has written for different audiences. One was for secular religious studies scholars, while the other was for faithful saints. Midgley rejects Newton's claim that a Mormon American cultural imperialism requires Maori to abandon noble elements of their culture. Faithful saints are liberated from the soul-destroying behavior that results from the loss of traditional Maori moral restraints. Midgley insists that Newton has little understanding of the deeper structures of Maori culture. After Marjorie Newton's Ph.D. was approved in February 1998, a potential publisher sent me a Xerox copy of her thesis. I gave it careful attention. It turned out that my Maori friends had been right at the Pioneers in the Pacific Conference held at BYU-Hawaii on 7-11, through 11, October 1997, at least two of them indicated that they doubted that she would do justice to the grounds and content of their faith. She would, they thought, ignore, downplay, or explain away matters sacred to them, and she would also be too critical of the way LDS mission presidents responded to the difficult issues they faced. They did not, however, make known how they came to know her agenda. I was also invited to evaluate her first effort to turn the two introductory chapters of her Ph.D. thesis into a history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in New Zealand. There were, however, serious flaws in what I call, quote, Newton's unpublished manuscript, close quote, one of which I will address in this appraisal of Mormon and Maori. I was pleased when Tiki and Temple was published in 2012. It is a fine, faith-affirming narrative history of the Church of Jesus Christ in New Zealand. She begins her account in 1854, when the periodic visits by Latter-day Saint missionaries from Australia first began, and ends with the creation of stakes and the dedication of the temple in Hamilton in 1958. Primarily, she tells the story of the conversion of Maori that began in 1882 and resulted in an essentially Maori community of Latter-day Saints in New Zealand. While I have praised Tiki and Temple, I have also demonstrated that Newton has little grasp of Maori tikanga, which is culture. However, she warns her readers, quote, As in Australian, I am vulnerable to errors of fact and interpretation in both New Zealand and American history, and especially in Maori culture, close quote. She also expresses her, quote, hope that one day, a Maori historian will produce a scholarly history of Mormonism in New Zealand that will remedy any omissions and defects in both my works. I also hope to see additional work done with the hundreds of stories of New Zealand saints, both Maori and Pukaha, that are still waiting to be told. Some of this additional work is beginning to be published. In Tiki and Temple, she says that she hoped she had been able to, quote, convey a sense of the faith, courage, and dedication of the North American missionaries and the corresponding faith, courage, and dedication of their converts, whether Maori or Pukaha. It features the stories of pioneers of the church in New Zealand, some of whom are otherwise uncelebrated. Two years after Tiki and Temple was published, the bulk of her 1998 thesis was published in Mormon and Maori, in both these works, she claims there has been much Maori LDS missionary myth-making, as well as connivance in fabricating miracle stories. In addition, she claims that, quote, American Mormon cultural imperialism, close quote, has required Maori saints to abandon large portions of their culture. Hence, Marjorie Newton asserts in both her thesis and in Mormon and Maori, quote, the LDS church's success in New Zealand was not achieved without cost to the culture and traditional way of life, Maori Tanga, of its Maori converts, close quote. In an effort to discover the source of her agenda, I have consulted all of Marjorie Newton's publications. She has mastered library and archival research, and she is adept at telling a good story. When coupled with her truly remarkable tenacity, this explains her impressive publishing career. 
Why has she sought to challenge the traditional Maori Latter-day Saint historical narrative in 1998 and then in 2014, while her tiki and temple was faith-affirming? This constitutes a puzzle I have sought to solve by looking carefully at everything she has published. Clues to solving this puzzle are found in a remark in Mormon and Maori about Tiki and Temple. Quote, that book, addressed primarily to a Latter-day Saint audience, was honored by the Mormon History Association with its Best International Book Award for 2012. However, it does not deal with deeper or more scholarly issues. Mormon and Maori was originally written as a Ph.D. thesis for the School of Studies in Religion at the University of Sydney and is accordingly a more objective and more academic examination of the interaction of Mormonism and Maori Tonga. In Tiki and Temple, she indicates she quote, does not attempt to address the recent scientific debate over Maori origins or current LDS teachings on the subject, but rather explains what the Mormon missionaries believed and taught in their own day, and how those teachings resonated with their Maori converts. Close quote. This appears to be her own justification for publishing both a faith-affirming account of Maori Latter-day Saints and also a more objective and more academic account in which she challenges the traditional Maori Latter-day Saint historical narrative as faithful history fashioned by Mormon apologists and hence mythical, fictitious, and false. Maori Saints and Mormon Cultural Imperialism Newton correctly claims that, quote, Many Maori today, including stalwart church members, want their culture to survive and feel that it exemplifies true Christian principles, not just the outward symbols displayed for tourists, but the deepest Maori values, close quote, some of which she mentions. However, the deepest Maori values constitute what Maori scholars tend to call tikanga, that is, the traditional right or correct ways of living, and not Maori tanga a word that tends to identify the ordinary or usual way things actually are, since the word Maori means ordinary or usual. A century back, Maori Tonga began to mean culture in the sense of the usual way Maori behave. Colonization radically challenged and also eroded Maori Tikanga. In her concluding remarks in Mormon and Maori, Newton opines that for a small minority of Maori saints, the costs of being a Maori Mormon may be too high. Why? In her thesis, she claims that, quote, the Mormon church still speaks with an American voice in its foreign missions and stakes. Although the Mormon church may not demand cultural suicide from its converts, New Zealand Mormons, in common with all members of the international LDS church, are implicitly expected to commit what Orana Kabani termed cultural treason if they wish to identify fully with Mormonism, close quote. At the end of her thesis, she highlights issues with American cultural imperialism, a crucial version of which is Mormon cultural imperialism. She clearly has a dim view of the impact of American culture outside of the United States, an example of which is the following, quote, What remains to be seen is how much the present blurring of cultural differences in the industrialized world will trivialize cultural tensions. If American pop culture, variously referred to as Coca colonization, or the McDonald's culture, continues to conquer the world at its present pace, preservation of Moritanga or any other culture may become an academic question. Quote. My own review of all 29 of Newton's publications suggests that it is not individual Americans, some of whom she knows and likes, who ground her concern about cultural conflict. Instead, she seems deeply concerned about the enormous social and economic changes that have especially since World War II, opened large parts of the world to a mixing and blending of cultures. Additionally, she is certain that an alien American church has increasingly insisted that Maori pay a high cultural price if they desire to be faithful Latter-day Saints. However, in the penultimate paragraph in Mormon and Maori, she grants that most saints do not see it her way. Quote, Nevertheless, despite the problematical issues described in this book, the Mormon Church has grown steadily in New Zealand in both numbers and status, until it now occupies a respectable place in New Zealand society. While there are many thousands of recent converts, 
There is also a considerable base of multi-generation Maori families strengthening the LDS Church in New Zealand. Most find spiritual satisfaction and happiness in church attendance, participation in church programs, and the Mormon way of life. Close quote. She adds the following lament, quote, Most New Zealand Mormons, both Maori and Pakeha, accept church teachings unquestionably and remain untouched by deeper or more difficult issues. Close quote. In both her thesis and in Mormon and Maori, I will address these difficult issues she refers to later. Newton's Agenda In her thesis, Newton focuses on what she calls cultural conflict between Maori ways and what was brought to them by American saints. There is little or none of this in Tiki and Temple, but it is a major focus of Mormon and Maori. In its preface, she insists that, quote, Never before have their leaders and missionaries faced the problems associated with socializing converts from such a wide spectrum of cultures. Resurgent nationalism and indigenization philosophy in many nations also pose problems for Mormon leaders, and recent attempts to strip the LDS Church of its American cultural overtones have been only partially successful. Thus, the history of Mormonism's impact on its Maori converts and their culture is surprisingly relevant to the wider church today. Close quote. Concern about Mormon cultural imperialism thus seems to be the key to both her thesis and Mormon and Maori. I therefore sought signs of this concern, and hence her agenda, in what she published on Latter-day Saints in Australia beginning in 1984. This led to a retrospective review, the published version of her 1986 MA thesis. I sought signs of her concern about Mormon cultural imperialism in what she published about the Church of Jesus Christ in Australia. There are some signs of this agenda, though fewer than in her 1998 Ph.D. thesis. What I have also discovered is that when Newton tells the truly heroic story of the long, very difficult struggle to bring the Church of Jesus Christ to Australia, and then later to New Zealand, there is no sign of her concern about a clash between American and native Australian and New Zealand cultures. In her excellent essays on Australian Latter-day Saints, there are no signs of concern about Mormon cultural imperialism. However, in several other essays on the Church of Jesus Christ in Australia, there is an overt concern about cultural conflict. The difference might be either her intended audience or the venue in which she sought to publish. The cultural imperialism about which she complains only seems to rise to the fore when she is discussing the sudden expansion of the Church of Jesus Christ in Australia that began in the decade after World War II. However, concern about cultural conflict becomes dominant when she discusses the faith of Maori saints. Some bungling. In Mormon and Maori, and in her thesis, she grants that faithful Maori Latter-day Saints are not troubled by what she pictures as the increasingly nefarious impact of Mormon American cultural imperialism. Hence, she hopes that what she calls, quote, those fringe-dwelling New Zealand Latter-day Saints, close quote, Pukaha, or Maori, who question what they see as Mormon cultural imperialism, might ponder this conclusion. Quote, it is only possible to travel in one direction. Any possibility of return has been preempted by the journey itself. Close quote. Newton uses this quote from a scholar speaking of another time and place and people. It is taken out of context from a book by Anthony Pagden. I will provide the context. Pagden is describing the opinions of Denis Diderot, a French Huguenot and hence a staunch Calvinist, who was briefly a Protestant missionary in Brazil. Quote, Fluid and ultimately porous, though Diderot's cultures may have been, they were also thought of as integral and discreet. It is only possible, as we have seen, to travel in one direction. As with Leary's Norman translators, any possibility of return has been preempted by the journey itself. At best, he or she who has undergone the trial of travel will be condemned, like Gulliver, to perpetual isolation from those who had once been his fellows. Pagden's point seems to be that the difficult experiences of the first Europeans to encounter the indigenous peoples in America and the Pacific led to a personal trial by travel, which included getting there and then getting back home again, and also communicating what they had experienced to others. Writers like Diderot came to believe that cultures, though porous, are not commensurable, which they also believed, quote, was underpinned by the concept of providential order 
in which all humans should be in harmony with nature. This may also entail the assumption that God does not want a fluid mixing of cultures. Pagden also indicates that Johann Gottfried Herder, a German nationalist, thought that religion might somehow unite all peoples. Why focus on Newton's concluding paragraph? It illustrates the problem she has when she shifts from narrations, which she does remarkably well, to analyses and arguments, which she does not, in either her Ph.D. thesis or Mormon and Maori. She is very skilled at archival research, and she can tell a good story, but she becomes unreliable when she speculates about abstractions like cultural conflict. A Passion to Publish, Hitting Some Snags When Newton's Ph.D. thesis was approved in February 1998, the Institute for Polynesian Studies, which published her Southern Cross Saints, was no longer publishing books. She had to seek a publisher interested in publishing a book challenging key elements in the Maori Latter-day Saint historical narrative, suggesting that Mormon cultural imperialism was harming Maori saints and making claims about Maori-Mormon myth-making. She sought the assistance of the Pacific Area President at the time, Elder Bruce Hafen. He suggested that she approach Ron Esplin, then director of the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute. As a favor to Elder Hafen, Esplin assigned Richard Jensen to have a look at her thesis, which then underwent peer review. Newton was urged to turn the first two chapters of her thesis into a narrative history of the faith of Latter-day Saints in New Zealand, which she immediately did. Her 510-page first draft then underwent peer review and was rejected for publication. She was then more strongly urged to fashion an accurate account of the faith of Maori saints, which was published more than a decade later as Tiki and Temple. Newton explains how she came to write Tiki and Temple in the following way, quote, My completed dissertation, entitled Mormonism in New Zealand, A Historical Analysis, was to be published by the Joseph Fielding Smith Institute for Church History at Brigham Young University, Provo. When it was suggested that I should write a chronological history of the New Zealand mission first, publication of the dissertation was delayed until the manuscript of Tiki and Temple was completed. Both books were still in the early stages of copy editing when the institute was closed in 2005. She describes Tiki and Temple as the second of my studies of the Latter-day Saints in New Zealand, even though it was published two years prior to Mormon and Maori. That book represented the ideological core of her more objective doctoral thesis, Mormonism in New Zealand, a historical appraisal, which was written for the Religious Studies Department of the University of Sydney. Confusion over Hagoth In Mormon and Maori, Newton advances what she believes is the primary reason why some Maori, beginning in 1882, rapidly became faithful Latter-day Saints. Quote, Undoubtedly the Mormon doctrine that had the greatest impact on Maori conversion and that underlay most other reasons for the appeal of the Mormon message from Maori was the belief that Polynesians are descendants of the expatriate Israelites of the Book of Mormon and are therefore eligible for the redemptive blessings promised to scattered Israel. I consider it a red flag when I see words like undoubtedly begin what should be an inductive argument intended to yield a conclusion Newton provides no textual evidence to support her assertion about what is presumably beyond doubt. Instead, she claims that LDS missionaries believe that, quote, Book of Mormon prophecies would be fulfilled, and the Lamanites on the Isles of the Sea, like those in the Americas, would be regenerated, close quote. However, what some LDS missionaries may have believed is not necessarily evidence for her opinion about what had the greatest impact on Maori conversion. She introduces in the next paragraph what she claims is a widespread belief that the Maori are the very remote descendants of Hagoth. I must stress that Hagoth, who is mentioned briefly in Alma 63, 5-8, was a Nephite shipbuilder and mariner. Both he and his associates are specifically said to be Nephites. They are not Lamanites. In addition, Hagoth, we are told, built an exceedingly large ship and launched it forth into the West Sea and many Nephites did enter therein and took their course northward. This man built other ships, and one other ship also did sail forth. Newton states, quote, It was upon the basis of this fragmentary Book of Mormon story, in Alma 63, 5-8, that Mormon missionaries found success among the Maori. Close quote. 
She also claims that, quote, prior widespread acceptance by Maori of Christian speculation about their Israelitish origin provided a fertile field in which the Mormon missionary message flourished, close quote. There was, in fact, some Pukaha, or European, speculation about the Maori being a remnant of Israel. Maori also tended to see their own very dim situation resulting from the ravages of colonial intrusion, explained in stories found in the Old Testament, which had been made available to them by Christian missionaries. She then asserts that, quote, although many Mormons, including many Maori Mormons, think that the LDS Church is unique in its belief that Polynesians are related to Native Americans, and that both are remnants of Israel, such beliefs were neither new nor unique when the Book of Mormon was published in 1830. However, she neglects to mention the Pakeha speculation about the Maori being a very remote remnant of ancient Israel did not link them with any indigenous peoples in America. Instead, the belief that Maori are somehow linked to America is a unique Latter-day Saint belief, rooted in the idea that they are at least partly the descendants of Nephite mariners mentioned in the Book of Mormon. At least twenty-five times in the first chapter of Mormon and Maori, when Newton refers to Hagoth, she identifies him and his associates as Lamanites, even though twice she correctly identifies Hagoth and those mariners as Nephites. She seems to ignore the fact that Hagoth was Nephite in her argument that, by teaching the Maori that they were Lamanites, LDS missionaries clashed with what she calls Maori Tonga, and thereby challenged both Maori traditions about their own origins, as well as recent secular speculation about such matters. Wrongly insisting on Lamanite descent, Mormon and Maori ends with a chapter entitled Mormon and Maori? The chapter title is an interrogative that signals that there is a radical tension between being a Latter-day Saint and being a Maori. However, she grants that, quote, For the majority of today's Maori Latter-day Saints, many of whom are third, fourth, or fifth-generation descendants of early Maori converts, who accepted the Mormon gospel because of this teaching, Lamanite descent is still a fundamental element of their self-identification, close quote. The fact is that Maori Latter-day Saints actually both venerate and read the Book of Mormon. She knows this is the case, since she quotes Grant Underwood as follows. Quote, to this day, Maori Latter-day Saints cherish the Book of Mormon as their story, the account of their people in distant antiquity before they sailed their waka, or canoes, to Aotearoa. The American missionaries may have carried it to them, and the American Pakaha. Joseph Smith may have translated it, but for well over a century, it has been read as the story of their ancestors. Close quote. The Book of Mormon was read by the older Maori I knew in 1950-1992, as their story in the sense that it was a tribal history whose narrative was very much like their own. They had long been, and still unfortunately were, much like the people described in the Book of Mormon. They knew and understood its contents better than any LDS missionary, including myself. When I encountered Maori in 1950, they were not pious, stuffed shirts, even though they knew they were of Nephite descent. They would say that, much like naughty missionaries, they sometimes misbehaved like Lamanites. They were often adept at seeing how stories and prophetic teaching were woven together, and then how those teachings applied to their own tribal identities. Why would Maori, for whom the Book of Mormon is their book, incorrectly see themselves as having Lamanite descent, when there is exactly nothing in that book to justify such a belief? Gina Colvin, who was raised as a Latter-day Saint, but who has now become an Anglican, is the only Maori of whom I am aware who muddles Hagoth with the Lamanites. However, she could merely be following Newton's lead on this matter. Confused by the debate over DNA Why make those Nephite mariners who sailed away into the West Sea into Lamanites when the language found in Alma 36 mentions only Nephites? Newton seems to insist on the Maori being Lamanites because doing so fits her own misunderstanding of the recent debate over DNA and the Book of Mormon. Much of this controversy was advanced by two former Latter-day Saints, neither of whom are population geneticists. Newton appears to use the opinions of the Australian molecular biologist and ex-Mormon Simon Southerton to justify rejecting her own false idea that Maori believe that they are Lamanites, which is scattered around two chapters in Mormon and Maori. In addition, she may not realize 
that it is a mistake to take seriously Simon Southerton's polemic about the Book of Mormon. Finally, the Book of Mormon provides the correct answer to her question, Nephites or Lamanites, which she then ignores. Newton claims that many Mormon apologists fashioned a Mesoamerican limited geography for the Book of Mormon as a result of DNA studies. The fact is that John Sorensen and others were advocating a Mesoamerican and hence a limited geography for the Book of Mormon long before the debate over DNA began. She does not seem to know that the argument for both a limited geography and a Mesoamerican location for the events depicted in the Book of Mormon flowed from very careful attention to the geographical clues in the Book of Mormon. This led to what John Clark called an internal map, which turned out to be consonant with a portion of Mesoamerica. In this same section of Mormon and Maori, Newton indicates that, quote, Orthodox Mormons are still expected to subscribe to the literal historicity of the Book of Mormon. On this we draw a line in the sand, stated Mormon Apostle Jeffrey Holland in 1994, close quote. Then she adds the following, quote, Tied to acceptance of the historicity of the Book of Mormon is the uncanonized Mormon belief about Polynesian origins. The recent scholarly debate over conclusions reached by scientists researching the DNA of Native Americans and Polynesians, that they are unrelated, has added another layer to the unquestioning faith required of those Maori Mormons aware of the arguments and counter-arguments presented. Quote. Newton argues that belief in literal descent from Nephites adds another layer of unquestioning faith required of Maori saints. Having to subscribe to the literal historicity of the Book of Mormon is already presumably a sufficient burden. Removing this additional burden would thus be a blessing to Maori and other Polynesian and Native American saints, if indeed it has been disproved by Southerton and Murphy. Her argument in the first chapter of Mormon and Maori seems to be that, by allowing the publication of an essay by John Sorensen in 1984, in which he sets out a limited geography, the brethren have thereby set in place the grounds for rejecting the belief that the Maori are in any way children of Lehi. Hence it is both foolish and unnecessary for the brethren to continue to urge Maori saints to seek the prophetic promises available to Lehi's remote descendants. She also insists that Maori were badly misled when they were identified as children of Lehi in their temple dedication prayer. The flatly false assertion that DNA studies by Southerton and Murphy led John Sorensen to fashion a limited geography for the Book of Mormon leads to the following, quote, Coupled with increasing scientific evidence of multiple migrations to America and continuing lack of archaeological and linguistic evidence for the existence of Book of Mormon peoples in the Americas, many Mormon apologists began to re-examine traditional assumptions about the Book of Mormon, close quote. However, increasing evidence of multiple migrations to America only enhances the plausibility of the three migrations to America described in the Book of Mormon. What Newton described in 2012 as the recent scientific debate over Maori origins or current LDS teachings on the subject thus turns out to be the debate over DNA and the Book of Mormon. Without being aware of what Latter-day Saint geneticists have published about population genetics in the Book of Mormon, she insists that the Brethren ought to officially jettison any idea that remote descendants of Lehites exist outside a limited area in Mesoamerica. She makes this claim based on what she believes is a false belief about Maori origins, supported by DNA evidence. But she misunderstands what Mormon apologists have written in response about DNA and the Book of Mormon. Despite her comments about Book of Mormon historicity, she does not deny that there were Lehites. Instead, she seems to assume that Southerton has only proven that remote descendants of Lehi cannot now be outside the limited area of Mesoamerica. This false assumption seems to be why she takes exception with John Sorensen's argument for a limited geography with what she sees as official approval, and also for a Mesoamerican location of the bulk of the events depicted in the Book of Mormon. She insists that because the Brethren seemingly approved John Sorensen's limited geography, they now can and should officially jettison the idea that there are any remote descendants of Lehites outside of a limited area in Mesoamerica. She wrongly assumes that no Lehites could ever have traveled outside of the area where they initially lived. In addition, she does not address the fact that Southerton's attack was on the historical authenticity of the Book of Mormon, and hence was not an argument that confines Lehites and their remote ancestors to a limited area.
She also argues that the belief that some of the remote ancestors of the Maori and other Polynesians were Nephite mariners would be easy to officially jettison because it never has been canonized. However, it is texts that are canonized, not interpretations of texts. Newton attempts to respond to Southerton's claim, quote, that LDS leaders, faced with unanswerable scientific data about Native American and Polynesian origins, are trapped in a situation in which they cannot make fundamental doctrinal changes without damaging the faith of millions of adherents, close quote. She does so by asserting that, quote, accepting a change to perspective on their origins may be difficult, but not devastating for the majority of Maori saints, close quote. She then mentions that some past practices, like taking the sacrament emblems only with the right hand, have been abandoned without the saints even noticing. She also claims that a formal retreat from the teachings that some of the ancestors of the Maori were Lamanites through Hagar, quote, would in no wise mean that Maori were not Israelites in the eyes of the Mormon church, close quote. However, in her own assessment of the early Pukaha speculation about Maori origins, she debunks the belief that the Maori could actually be a very remote remnant of ancient Israel. Trashing the Maori Latter-day Saint Historical Narrative In Tiki and Temple, Newton relies on textual sources that include accounts of divine manifestations to Maori. For instance, she relies heavily on the remarkable contemporary account written by William Bromley, who arrived in Auckland, New Zealand in December 1880 to serve as Austral-Asian Mission President. He had been instructed by the Brethren to take the gospel to the Maori. He struggled to do this. Some of his very few fellow missionaries made some unwise and even bizarre efforts to reach and teach the Maori, which Newton describes in detail, often following Bromley's diary. These efforts all failed, until on 5 April 1881, Bromley set apart William MacDonnell, who had joined the Church of Jesus Christ in Auckland after he arrived in New Zealand from Ireland, to be a missionary to the Maori. He also blessed MacDonald to learn the Maori language, which he immediately began to do. On 18 October 1881, MacDonald baptized Ngataki, who was the first Maori to join the church in New Zealand. However, the real breakthrough came later. On 17 December 1882, Thomas Levis Cox, who was born in England in 1845, and who, with his family, had moved to New Zealand, where he became a Latter-day Saint, invited Bromley to spend Christmas with him in Cambridge which is 91 miles from Auckland and 14 miles south of Hamilton. Bromley indicates that, as a result of didactic dreams, MacDonald also made the journey to Cambridge for Christmas. MacDonald arrived unexpectedly at the Cox residence before breakfast on 24 December. After breakfast, they set out to contact some Maori who were camped near Cambridge. Later that day, they met Hara Te Imana, who desired a blessing for his very ill daughter, which was given. Te'imana also told MacDonald that he had been visited by the Apostle Peter, who was dressed in white clothing, and who showed him the three Latter-day Saints, that is, Bromley, Cox, and MacDonald, in a vision, so that he recognized them as agents of apostolic authority. Hare Te'imana, his wife, and one other adult were baptized in the Waikato River on Christmas Day, 1882. MacDonald then returned to Auckland, but Bromley soon summoned him back to Cambridge to interpret for other Maori anxious to hear the LDS missionary message, which took place on Sunday, 31 December, 1882. On the following day, six more baptisms took place. These and additional conversions led to the establishment of the first Maori LDS branch, which was located in tiny Watu, 18 miles south of Cambridge. One cannot fashion even a murky narrative of the very first conversions of Maori to the Church of Jesus Christ in New Zealand, without mentioning the encounter of Bromley, Cox, and MacDonnell, who served as translator with Hara Teimana and those subsequent baptisms. However, in her thesis, Marjorie Newton made some critical factual errors. For instance, in her thesis, she located those crucial events at least once in Huntley, which is 35 miles north of Cambridge, but also on the Waikato River. She also missed other details of that important event. In the section entitled The First Maori Branch, in Newton's unpublished manuscript, she wrote the following, quote, In August 1882, Thomas and Hannah Cox, English immigrants who joined the Mormon Church in Auckland in 1880, 
moved to Cambridge in the Waikato, where Thomas set up business as a boot and shoemaker. Here they became friendly with the local Maori tribe. Seeing an opportunity, they invited President Bromley to spend Christmas with them. On Christmas Eve, a Sunday, they were joined by MacDonald, and the three men spent the evening preaching to a group of Maori. Later that evening, after discussing Mormon doctrine in a chief's home, they laid hands on and blessed his sick daughter, who quickly recovered. On Christmas Day in 1882, the Maori chief, Ara Teamana, his wife, Para, and another Maori, possibly Ara Katara, or Harry Carter, were baptized in the nearby river. Some of the more problematic details in this paragraph include the following. Newton presents no evidence that Teamana was a Maori chief. Neither Bromley nor Cox could understand Maori. Without MacDonald, they could have only passed out some leaflets that MacDonald had previously managed to have translated into Maori. On 24 December 1882, MacDonald arrived at the Cox home before breakfast, after which they set out to contact Maori camped near Cambridge. On 24 December 1882, those three fellows did not discuss Mormon doctrine with Te Emana. Instead, he told MacDonald how he had come to recognize them as authorized agents for the Apostle Peter, and asked them to bless his very ill daughter. She had not eaten in days, which they did. On 25 December 1882, Christmas Day, when the three Latter-day Saints visited Te Amana again, his daughter was recovering nicely. She had even eaten some strawberries. Then MacDonald explained to Te Amana, his wife, and probably Harete Katera, or Harry Carter, what being baptized entailed, prior to that being done that evening in the Waikato River. Other interested Maori observed the baptism. After quoting Bromley's descriptions of the baptism of Teemana, his wife, and perhaps Harete Katere, in the Waikato River, Newton indicates that, quote, MacDonald's version of the story portrayed his visit to Cambridge and subsequent teaching of the chief and his family solely as the result of inspiration and the happenings of one day, close quote. She then argues that, quote, the Cox family deserves more credit for the first successful introduction of the restored gospel to the Maori people. Her reason for celebrating Thomas and Hannah Cox's role in the first successful introduction of the restored gospel to the Maori people is that Samuel Cox, who was the oldest son of Thomas and Hannah Cox, and presumably a witness to the events when he was barely eleven, wrote a letter in 1957 in which he claimed that his father had become very friendly with the three Maori who were baptized on Christmas Day in 1882. They were, he claimed, quote, already prepared for and waiting for baptism when Bromley and MacDonald arrived in Cambridge, close quote. This letter was written 75 years after the events that took place in December 1882. In her Ph.D. thesis, she tells a slightly different version of this important story. She begins by mentioning that Bromley set apart MacDonald to take the Mormon message to the Maori, after which he eventually baptized Ngataki, then writes, quote, Fifteen months later, Bromley and MacDonald baptized several Maori near Huntley. MacDonald's story of the December 1882 visit there implies that he was suddenly inspired to follow the mission president, who was visiting church members Thomas and Hannah Cox in the Waikato town. That, meeting the Maori who had been prepared by a vision, he and Bromley taught them the gospel that evening, 24 December, and baptized the first of them on Christmas Day. Then Newton adds that Samuel Cox quote, later stated that his father had become very friendly with the local Maori tribe, and that the three baptized were already prepared and waiting when Bromley and MacDonald arrived in Cambridge. Close quote. In this account, Newton uses this letter, written 75 years after the events it presumably describes, to trump Bromley's detailed contemporary diary in the later reminiscences of William MacDonald and Thomas Cox, Samuel's father. A step forward. Those who were then at the Smith Institute must be praised for insisting that Marjorie Newton produced the much more accurate narrative history that was eventually published in Tiki and Temple. In this book, she correctly indicates that Maori saints were prepared by their own prophets for their initial encounters with the message of Latter-day Saint missionaries. She even included a slightly more accurate version of the story about Hara Te Amana's encounter with, or dream of, the Apostle Peter. 
She explains that Maori prophets played a role in generating a Maori community of saints. However, in her first attempt to fashion a narrative account of the faith of Maori saints, she never mentions Arama Toiroa, Para Potengaroa, and other Maori seers. Downplaying specific prophecies. In her thesis, Newton addresses the claim that Mormons cite Maori prophecies as evidence of the divine preparation of the Maori people. She claims that the prophecies merely foretold a rather vague, generalized list of items and insists that Mormon apologists have not confronted the fact that few of these items are characteristic of Mormonism. She casually mentions that the true messengers, quote, would be recognized because they would pray with their arms raised to the square, closed quote. What she does not indicate is that Para Potangaroa's E Kawanata, which he dictated in 1881, he specifically mentions that the true messengers would pray with their right arms to the square. When those Latter-day Saint missionaries, who turned up in the Wai Rarapa in 1883, prayed with their right arms raised to the square, they were immediately recognized as true messengers from God. During my life, as a young boy, this mode of prayer was not uncommon for blessing the emblems of the sacrament. The prophetic proclamation by Arama Toiroa in 1830 was that the true messengers would raise both arms over their heads when they prayed, which is how Alma Greenwood, Ira Hinckley, and William Stewart prayed at Korongata Bridge Pa, where some who were familiar with Toiroa's prophecies then lived. This and several other very distinctive behaviors quickly led to the conversion of those at Korongata and then elsewhere among those familiar with Toiroa's words. Newton uses the expression variously foretold in relation to these prophecies, which obscures the fact that different Maori seers provided very specific indications that the true messengers had arrived for their own people. It was not a one-size-fits-all sort of thing. She has jumbled together several proclamations of Maori Matakita in an effort to dismiss the role they played in the conversion of Maori saints. This she did in both her theses, with essentially the same language. However, the specific details of the account are essential in assessing what Professor Robert Joseph identifies as the Maori Latter-day Saint historical narrative. Failure to fully consider alternative viewpoints. I have previously called attention to an essay by Robert Joseph, a Latter-day Saint scholar who set out significant new details about those whom Latter-day Saints, including Marjorie Newton, have called prophets, but whom the Maori call matakite, or seers. They played a crucial role in preparing some Maori iwi, or tribes, for Latter-day Saint missionaries and their message. Newton is fully aware of Professor Joseph's essay, the contents of which challenge her writings in Chapter 8 of her thesis and in the beginning of Mormon and Maori. In fact, in Mormon and Maori, Newton cites Professor Joseph's essay in her bibliography and then quotes portions of the opening paragraph of his essay, where she indicates that he, quote, has summarized some often overlooked consequences of the imbalance resulting from the introduction of Western culture into colonial New Zealand, close quote. Professor Joseph began his essay with a Maori prophecy. His English translation reads as follows, quote, Behind the tattooed face a stranger stands. He will inherit the world. He is white, close quote. What followed was a detailed account of some of the Maori seers who played a crucial role in the story of the faith of Maori saints. Newton, however, does not seem to be even aware of the names of some of these Maori matakita. In addition, she quotes language out of context from Professor Joseph's essay. She never hints that he provided valuable new information on the Maori seers who opened the way for Latter-day Saint missionaries and their message. Instead of engaging Professor Joseph's evidence and arguments, Newton only quotes portions of the opening paragraph of his essay, where he introduces the actual cultural context in which seers opened the way for Maori to become faithful Latter-day Saints. Following is the portion which Newton quotes. Land and natural resources loss through unjust wars, confiscations, and their legal machinations wrecked havoc on the relationship between people and the natural environment. The forcible individualization of land, property, and world values in the native land court disturbed the balance between members of kin groups, and the individualistic and economic assumptions of European capitalism and Western liberalism destroyed traditional reciprocity economics, the equilibrium between kin, the physical and metaphysical world, 
the environment, and the fundamental obligations to past, present, and future generations. Close quote. I will now quote Joseph's entire paragraph. According to Ngati Watu sources, the prophecy above was uttered by their tribal Tohunga Matakita, or seer, Titahi, who foretold the bittersweet arrival of the Pakahi and the subsequent impacts of European contact, which thrust the Maori worldview into a state of perilous imbalance, as had been prophesied. Land and natural resources lost through unjust wars, confiscations, and their legal machinations wrecked havoc on the relationship between people and the natural environment. The forcible individualization of land, property, and world values in the native land court disturbed the balance between members of kin groups, introduced diseases and addictive substances, alcohol, tobacco, coffee, tea, and sugar, decimated tribal populations, and undermined Maori health and well-being. Christianity damaged in many ways the connection between the people and the gods, and the individualistic and economic assumptions of European capitalism and Western liberalism destroyed traditional reciprocity economics, the equilibrium between kin, the physical and metaphysical world, the environment, and the fundamental obligations to past, present, and future generations. Close quote. None of the relentless, bleak unraveling of the traditional Maori way of life was the work of Latter-day Saint missionaries, or of the quirks of mission presidents or missionaries, or the result of the inadequacy of LDS church policies for non-Western indigenous converts, about which Newton complains. The unraveling of the traditional Maori way of life was well on its way when LDS missionaries suddenly found Maori, who were prepared for them in their message by their own seers, and in various other stunning ways. Newton tends to ignore, downplay, or explain this away in her presumably more objective and more academic thesis, and in its published version, but not in Tiki and Temple. Latter-day Saint missionaries made contact with Maori many years after the radical degradation and decline of their world was in full swing. It was, as Joseph points out, the bittersweet arrival of the Pakahe that provided the context for truly remarkable cultural interchange that took place between the Maori and Latter-day Saint missionaries, in which both were and still are blessed. In the dismal situation in which the Maori found themselves by 1880, with rapid decline well on its way, and a desperate scramble to preserve Maori resources and identity, some were anxious for answers to the evils they faced. Then Maori, Matakita, opened the way for the Latter-day Saint message. What those missionaries offered, among other things, was a genuine revival of Maori moral discipline. Faithful saints were thereby shielded from the very attractive but also soul-destroying beliefs, practices, vices, and addictions made available by their British colonizers. These base behaviors, even now, have much of the Maori world teetering on the rim of an abyss. The fact is that faithful Maori saints, in the face of the growing degradation that many Maori face, have become much better Maori. In addition, Latter-day Saint missionaries who enter their charmed world have also become more solid saints. Finally, at the risk of being seen as immodest, I must point out that, in addition to not genuinely engaging the work of those Newton clearly denigrates as Mormon apologists, that is, those who advance the Mormon faithful history interpretation of the grounds and contents of the faith of Maori saints, she has ignored two of my own essays. The first of these was published in 1998, shortly after her Ph.D. thesis was approved. The second was published in 1999, while my wife and I directed the Lawrence Street LDS Institute in Auckland, New Zealand. Some concluding comments. In her thesis, as I have demonstrated, Newton strives to expose the clash between an alien American church and Maori culture. She also opines about the role of myth in Maori Mormonism. She strives to demythologize the faithful history version of the faith of Maori saints advanced by Mormon apologists. Her chapter entitled Mormon Legends in New Zealand is a sustained and also strained effort at debunking what she claims is clumsy, crude embellishment and or outright fabrication of accounts of miracles. She describes what she labels three legends that, quote, provide classic case studies of the way religious myths grow, develop, and become entrenched, close quote. Then, under the chapter subheading, Implications for the Church, she asks, quote, What, then, can be made of an apostle, later president, of the LDS Church, promoting a story that was, it appears, at worst, fabricated, 
at best, exaggerated, close quote. She has in mind here Elder David O. McKay. Her conclusion is that the stories she strives to debunk in Chapter 3 of Mormon and Maori fit the category of myth rather than history. This is also, as I have demonstrated, her objective stance on Maori saints being providentially prepared for the Church of Jesus Christ by their own seers. Newton ends her assessment of what she considers myth-making by quoting what Eric J. Sharp, the religious studies professor who supervised her thesis, once said on a radio station about a famous Australian historian with whom he strongly disagreed on political issues. Quote, history written for propaganda purposes is bad history. There is no easier way to bear false witness than to misrepresent those who are no longer able to defend themselves, merely in order to comfort the true believers. Close quote. This is, of course, the reason that every effort ought to be made to give serious attention to the Maori Latter-day Saint historical narrative. Addendum. In this essay, I have not addressed Marjorie Newton's comments about the Maori Eo cult or its close relationship with the initiation that elite Maori men once underwent in a Fara Onanga, or House of Learning. I have previously shown that Tikian Temple would have been improved by a careful study of what was imparted in those Onanga, since those so initiated were both able to grasp what Latter-day Saint missionaries presented and to assist in their efforts to take their message to other Maori. The reason, of course, is that what they had been taught meshed so well with what they heard from Latter-day Saint missionaries. Louis Midgley, Ph.D., Brown University, is an emeritus professor of political science at Brigham Young University, where he taught the history of political philosophy, which includes efforts of Christian churchmen and theologians to identify, explain, understand, and cope with the evils in this world. Dr. Midgley has therefore had an abiding interest in both dogmatic and systematic theology, and the alternatives to both. His doctoral dissertation was on the religious socialist political ideology of Paul Tillich, a once famous German-American Protestant theologian, most famous for his systematic theology, which is a radical elaboration of classical theism. Dr. Midgley's encounter with the writings of Leo Strauss, an influential Jewish philosopher-intellectual historian, drew his attention to the radical challenge posed by what is often called modernity, to both the wisdom of Jerusalem, which is grounded on divine revelation, and also the contrasting, competing wisdom of Athens, which was fashioned by unaided human reason. Dr. Midgley has an interest in the ways in which communities of faith have responded to the challenges posed by modernity to faith in God grounded on divine special revelation. This has been a recording of Marjorie Newton's account of the faith of the Maori saints, a critical appraisal, by Lewis Midgley, published in Interpreter, a Journal of Mormon Scripture, Volume 30, 2018, read by Steve Metcalf. This audio recording is copyrighted under Creative Commons license and may be freely distributed if it remains unchanged, the journal and its website are credited, and is for non-commercial use. A printed version of this and many other articles on Mormon Scripture can be found at mormoninterpreter.com. More information about the Interpreter Foundation, along with a wide array of additional resources, can be found at interpreterfoundation.org.